Hello, and welcome to Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Michion Diagnostics. In this series, we will discuss thrombosis and hemostasis from the perspective of our host, benign hematologist and medical director of Michion Diagnostics, Dr. Brad Lewis. Brad, take it away. Hi, this is Brad Lewis again from Machion Diagnostics, once again giving a talk on uh, an aspect of uh, coagulation and some of the other things that we do here at Machion. Today's talk is going to be on common, common errors and misconceptions that come up around some of the coagulation testing that we do. We're clearly not going to cover everything, but I did want to cover some of these problems. First question might very well be, why do we even care about these problems? And we care actually for a number of reasons. We care because it sometimes confuses our, our behavior, but also some of the mistakes we're going to talk about cause delays in diagnosis and therapy that can matter. Some of them cause a misdiagnosis, which can matter. And just as bad, some of the erroneous things that are done cause a misdiagnosis that then leads to a failure to move on to the real diagnosis, which can cause problems. There's also confusion for patients and for physicians that can come up. And occasionally, not often, but occasionally, some of these errors can actually lead to a mistreatment, to the treatment of the wrong disease. So let's talk about some of the kinds of errors that we see fairly commonly in, uh, here at Machion. Some of the problems that come up, in fact, by far probably the most common source of errors are what we call pre-analytic errors, pre-analytic variables, things that happen to the sample before we get it. So really nothing can be, can be done by us. By us. Um, these, as I said, are very common, and it, it leads to an even bigger issue, which is that mistakes happen in labs. So whenever you get a lab result where the lab result is critical to the diagnosis, it's almost always worth repeating the test, assuming that the patient's uh, situation is not one that requires an urgent response to the test. But repeating a test is almost always a good idea. Um, intrinsic uh, to, the, to the sample variables that can come up prior to showing up in the laboratory include spinning the sample at too low a speed so the platelets are left up in the solution, up in the plasma, and that can cause problems for some tests. Commonly, the samples are mishandled. That can mean leaving them at the wrong temperature. Problematic can be if a sample is supposed to be frozen quickly and instead is left out for a while and then somebody remembers, by the way, I'm supposed to freeze that sample. We get a sample that's frozen with no idea that it was sitting out for some period of time at room temperature or worse occasionally. Um, handling the sample itself can cause problems. Shaking the sample can cause problems. Letting it sit can cause some problems. Um, these can affect any of the tests that we do or many of the tests that we do particularly sensitive to these kinds of uh, handling errors is the PTT, which can uh, easily be, be damaged, if you will, by, by uh, handling errors. It's actually a good article, by the way, if someone's interested, by Gil White from around 2003 that looks at the history and the nature of the PTT and some of the problems they had initially that they began to try to deal with by, by changing variables within the PTT. Um, there are also issues that can happen prior to our receiving the sample with the patient that can cause us problems. Patients are often on drugs that no one either knows about or tells us about. So we get patients with a long pro-time, but they're on Coumadin, um, which explains that. Or we get patients with a long PTT that won't get better, and they're on um, a novel oral anticoagulant, or they're even on heparin that people forgot to tell us about. We see factitious errors. Patients um, who come in who are self-injecting uh, low molecular weight heparin, Lovenox, or heparin, for example, 
Now, more patients who are on meds and they've forgotten to tell the doctor who's sending us the sample that some other physician had placed them on an anticoagulant um, just slipped their mind. The draw itself can be a problem. The draw can be into the wrong tube, so the plasma is anticoagulated uh, wrongly. It can be contaminated with heparin, which is surprisingly common. Blood drawn in the ICU during a blood gas or through a line, which was at some point heparinized for one reason or another. Now, because the heparin can bind to the plastic, it will hang around for a long time in some of those situations and can then contaminate somewhat unpredictably uh, the sample. Or again, the patient can be on uh, heparin. Even mini-dose heparin, low-dose heparin given subcutaneously can in some patients cause marked accumulation and actual prolongation of the PTT and in fact a, a therapeutic heparin level in what should be a prophylactic setting. Um, and again, handling, as we mentioned earlier, can, can be a problem um, with the samples before they get to us. And then the other pre-analytic issue, which is not exactly a, a uh, sample variable, but often the wrong test is ordered. And this can be some of the common things like uh, factor five is wanted. That's an unusual test. And what's ordered instead is a factor five Leiden because that's such a more common test. Everybody's more used to ordering that. Those are very different. A factor five activity looks at the function of the factor five and is useful for working up a long pro-time or a bleeding patient in certain situations. Factor V Leiden is a genetic test looking for a gain of function mutation in the factor V that leads people to be hypercoagulable. Similarly, when a prothrombin is wanted, a factor II um, is, is desired, and what's ordered is actually a, a prothrombin gene mutation. The factor II activity, again, is, looks at function of factor II in the plasma, in the blood, but uh, the prothrombin gene mutation is, again, a gain-of-function mutation that, that renders the patient somewhat hypercoagulable. Um, another source of errors is a problem we're beginning to see um, in the more recent past, but it's traditional to, to label factor levels using Roman numerals. Um, that made great sense when I was a boy, when people took Latin in high school, um, and everybody learned how to use Roman numerals. Now we see a number of people working in the labs and, and others who just don't have a clue what Roman numerals are about. So when they get an IX, they don't uh, recognize that that's critically different than an XI, um, IX being factor 9, uh, XI being factor 11. Um, I think there are two possible ways of dealing with this, but you need to have some consistent pattern in your in your hospital and in your own behavior. I think if everyone agrees to use Roman numerals and everybody in the lab learns to use them, that works great. What I've tried to do is to use traditional numbers for factor two, factor nine, factor 11. I really try to use traditional numbers for all of the factors these days and simply don't use Roman numerals. Um, the Rome, the you know, factor 11 can be read as a factor two in Roman numerals. So since the problems can go both directions, you simply have to pick up one or the other. I don't use Roman numerals anymore for, for my factor levels and my lab knows that. Moving on, um, one of the biggest issues I see in physician behavior around testing is confusing the tests we do with a clinical reality. When we do a blood test, especially things like the PT and the PTT, we're measuring how blood clots in glass. And glass should probably be in quotes because we often do some things to trigger clotting to make it a little different. But the point is that it's not the same kind of clotting. It's not being triggered in the same way as it would be in, in vivo, in, your, in the patient's body. 
Um, and you need to remember this every time you get back an abnormal PT or PTT. And I see both kinds of, mis of erroneous responses, of misresponses to, to this testing. One is physicians who are overconcerned. They get a long PTT in a patient who's clinically perfectly well, and they won't move on with necessary, often urgently necessary surgery because they're afraid of the coagulopathy Although, in fact, what it is is a factor 12 or a factor 11 sometimes, or even a lupus anticoagulant, problems that don't really cause a coagulopathy. But they look at the PTT and they say the patient's a bleeder. I've even had people, had surgeons call the PTT a bleeding time. It's not a measure of the patient's propensity to bleed. It's a measure of how well the blood clots in glass a long PTT means you need to find out what the problem is. And that works in both directions. I've Recently had a patient who was on pre-op testing, found to have a PTT of 80. And the surgeon said, yeah, it's not an urgent surgery, but I don't see that that's a problem. We see long PTTs all the time and proceeded with the surgery. Well, you know, factor nine levels can, can look like that, probably not that high. Factor 11 levels, which uh, can be of significance in that when the PTT is that high in that setting, um, were all possibilities. In this particular case, it did ultimately turn out to be a lupus anticoagulant, but it needn't have been. So you need to know to respond to long PTTs, and the response should entail moving on to get a diagnosis because the PTT itself is not a problem. The other part of that that can happen is everyone learns to, or many people learn to, ignore mildly prolonged PTTs. We see that. It's a pre-analytic you know, handling issue very often, but a persistent, pro, even mildly prolonged PTT should be addressed. So a PTT that's even a few seconds long could be the result of a factor eight or factor nine that's perhaps in the 20 to 30% range, depending on your setup in your lab. Every lab has a different sensitivity to, to different factors, but a 20 to 30% factor eight or nine, although it may not cause problems in a day-to-day -day life, will or may cause problems with certain kinds of surgery and needs to be addressed. So again, a persistently prolonged PT or PTT, that is a problem. And then the last issue I sort of alluded to, but you need to know what factor is causing the prolonged PTT that you have. So a patient with a mildly prolonged PTT because of factor eight or nine is potentially a serious bleeder under surgical stresses. On the other hand, a patient with a moderately severely low factor 7 or 11, although those factors matter, those patients have variable clinical response and may or may not really have bleeding. You can see patients with a 10 or 15% of normal level of factor 11 who really don't bleed with, with um, common surgeries and similarly with factor 7. And some factors, factor 12, for example, high molecular weight kininogen precalicrine, those factors, those factors when they're low can cause a fairly marked prolongation of the PTT without any real clinical sequelae that we're currently clear about. There may turn out to be some issues that come out down the road, but not a coagulopathy. Um, we've had a, a full session here on lupus anticoagulants, and I'm not going to go over those again, but just a reminder that the lupus anticoagulant is common in patients who are ill in the hospital. Um, and if it's not an, an urgent issue, you want to delay your lupus anticoagulant testing for a month or so after the patient has come in with their, with their current illness. Occasionally, the testing is urgent. Patients with possible catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome, patients with a TMA that could be due to a lupus anticoagulant, for example. And in those situations, obviously, you will proceed with testing in the acute phase. But realize that the testing can be aberrantly 
um, abnormal in that acute phase, and those tend to be transient. So you want to delay your testing if you can. If it's positive, you want to wait another 90 days and then retest, assuming the situation allows you to, to do that. The other side of lupus anticoagulants is remember that a mild lupus anticoagulant may come and go. They, they're very handling dependent um, in some situations. So one lab will find the lupus anticoagulant one, or the long PTT. Another lab will not notice the long PTT. Um, and it can give you funny results on some lab tests, depending on the way, on the, the, the nature of the testing that's being done. So that um, when you get weird results, one thing to think about is a lupus anticoagulant. And then just to liven up your day a little bit, I had a friend who was a surgeon, one of those really great surgeons who knows everything. He knew surgery, he knew medicine. He was the kind of person you want with you when you're trapped on a desert island. And this, this surgeon had a patient who had pre-op testing for whatever reason, um, was found to have a long PT and PTT. He then went ahead and, and tested the patient for the lupus anticoagulant since they had no bleeding issues. Very positive for lupus anticoagulant. He took the patient to surgery, a cholecystectomy actually, and then called me from the middle of the surgery and said, you know, I had this patient, they had a lupus anticoagulant, took him to surgery like I knew I could, and now I can't stop the bleeding and close the patient. What did I do wrong? And the answer was, this patient had a long prothrombin in the setting of a lupus anticoagulant and had a prothrombin deficiency. Prothrombin deficiencies, prothrombin antibodies are very, very common in patients with lupus anticoagulant. Prothrombin deficiency is moderately common, and clinically significant prothrombin deficiencies are seen in patients. If you have a patient with a pro time that's longer than 22 or 23 seconds in the setting of a lupus anticoagulant, you should be thinking about the possibility of a prothrombin deficiency. And remember, if you do, as we're about to talk about, send off a mixing study, that this will appear to be a prothrombin deficiency, not a prothrombin inhibitor in this setting, although in fact it's an antibody-mediated problem. Um, since we've mentioned mixing studies, let's just uh, talk about that for a second. When you see a patient with a prolonged PT-PTT um, or almost any other coagulation test that appears to have appeared um, anew, especially in an adult, and you don't think this is a congenital deficiency, the first thing you should be doing is to send off a mixing study. And you do that because this nicely, if you're lucky, separates the acquired antibody-mediated uh, factor inhibitors from the congenital deficiency or other kind of failure to produce the, the factor. And this changes very much the way you treat these patients and it, and it changes the way you proceed in your diagnostic algorithm. So the first thing to do should generally be a mixing study. And we'll, we'll have a whole session on how to evaluate coagulopathies and prolonged PTs and PTTs, but just as a, you know, sort of a knee-jerk sort of seat of the pants, if I can mix my metaphors, kind of response to a long PTT or PT or anything else, get a mixing study. What is a mixing study? We'll talk more about it in, a, in another session, but a mixing study is a very simple test. Basically, we're taking the taking plasma and we're banking on the fact that if you take plasma and mix it with almost anything, if you mix it with something that has no factors in it, you'll still get a normal PTPTT or almost any other test. If you then take that normal plasma and you mix it with your patient's plasma 
and you get an abnormal PT or PTT, what that's telling you is there's something in that patient's plasma that's worse than water. Is there something in the plasma that inhibits normal plasma? There is an inhibitor in there. So if you do, if you mix the patient's plasma with normal plasma and everything corrects, it's a deficiency. If it doesn't correct, it's, it's an inhibitor. Remembering that the test is pretty crude. So if you don't have at least, you know, five to seven seconds prolongation of your test, it can be a somewhat uncertain sort of an answer that you end up, you end up getting. Um, why does this matter? It matters again because it changes the way you proceed, but it also matters because in some labs, an inhibitor will give you confusing results on your factor activities. And that's a mistake I see done often in outside labs where they didn't do a mixing study, they send off the multiple factor levels, which is probably a waste of resources in many cases. But more importantly, if that lab is not doing multiple dilutions when they run their factor activities, you can come back with what appears to be a deficiency when it really is an inhibitor. Now, in a lab that's doing multiple uh, dilutions as they should, that should be picked up because as you're diluting the sample, you're diluting the inhibitor and the factor level should appear to rise as you're doing the dilutions because you're diluting out the inhibitor. Um, but again, in some labs that isn't done and it can lead, lead to a false diagnosis of a factor deficiency. And lastly, before I, I end this collection, this potpourri of, of uh, mistakes that are sometimes made, um, in, in evaluating coagulopathy. Let me just talk a little bit about von Willebrand's disease. I recently uh, had a meal with, a, with an old friend who many years ago, decades ago actually, had helped gather funding for a, for a project to travel around the country, have people travel around the country and, and remind everybody to think about von Willebrand's more often, approach the diagnosis more aggressively. Everybody with a von Willebrand's activity of under 50% should be considered as having von Willebrand's and then uh, treated as such. Um, that was an overdiagnosis. And what it's led to is a number of people who have factor, who have von Willebrand's activities in the, uh, you know, 30 to 50% range, who probably many of them do not really have von Willebrand's disease. And as a result of this overdiagnosis, these patients are often being treated for von Willebrand's disease erroneously. And in some cases, more significantly, they have a bleeding history. They have this marginal, uh, marginally low von Willebrand's activity on one test in the past. And what it's led to is a failure to pursue other diagnoses when in many of those cases they really did have, for example, primary congenital uh, platelet defects that often needed to be treated somewhat differently than these patients are actually being treated. So it makes a difference. Now, patients with von Willebrand's activities less than 30%, they really have von Willebrand's disease. Those patients need to be um, worked up and treated for that. Patients above 50% persistently, they don't have von Willebrand's. Remembering that von Willebrand's activities rise as acute phase reactants and rise during pregnancy, but if the levels are persistently above 50%, they probably don't. And that 30 to 50% range is still a bit murky and requires some, some sort of clinical input. Um, we do see patients who appear to be normal otherwise on platelet aggregation, for example, in that range, and yet they seem to bleed. And in one recent study, those patients appear to respond to getting DDAVP peripartum and, and preoperatively. So I think the jury's out on this mid-range of Willebrand's deficiency, but clearly under 30% is real. Um, why, what should you do with the levels under 30%? 
you know, you or you should be sending your patients to a hematologist if you're not comfortable with it. You probably want to be careful and characterize the nature of their von Willebrands. Um, it matters. In particular, patients with type 1C von Willebrands will look like they just have regular old mild type 1 von Willebrands deficiency, uh, type 1 being a, a loss of both the antigen and the activity. It's just simply a mild or moderate deficiency of von Willebrands. But in 1C, they have an increased rate of clearance. That matters because those patients will respond poorly to DDAVP um, when it's given and, and um, may need to be treated with uh, von Willebrands concentrate. Um, somewhat similarly, patients with type 2B von Willebrands the type 2s are when you have a defect in the behavior of the von Willebrands, but the antigen itself um, is often fairly normal. Type 2B is actually a gain-of-function mutation where the von Willebrands is hyperactive, causes clumping of the platelets and an often an associated platelet uh, deficiency, a thrombocytopenia, um, along with the, 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 gluten, the clumping of the von Willebrands to the platelets that causes a von Willebrands deficiency, which can then lead to bleeding in these patients. But remember that it's a gain-of-function mutation that's causing the type 2B von Willebrands, and those are patients where you would not generally want to give them something like DDAVP, which increases the production of their native, and in this case, hyperactive von Willebrands. You might, in some patients, exacerbate the problem, and in many, you will not ameliorate the problem. Um, Along these same lines, type 2N von Willebrands presents with a low uh, factor 8, and it can be uh, moderately to even severely low uh, factor 8 levels. Looking like hemophilia, their von Willebrands activity um, and all other von Willebrands testing are in really entirely normal. Um, and yet these patients have factor 8 deficiency because of an abnormal von Willebrands that doesn't bind well to the factor 8 not. Factor 8 that doesn't have von Willebrands bound to it has a very short survival in the body. So these patients have an increased rate of clearance of factor 8 caused by an abnormal von Willebrands. Giving them more factor 8, and even with factor 8, with pure factor 8 concentrates that don't contain von Willebrands will not ameliorate the problem. They're still going to have a short, a short uh, half-life, increased clearance of their factor 8. So again, this changes your behavior considerably. Uh, characterizing von Willebrands will be the subject of another podcast. Um, it's a fairly complex um, issue when you're trying to use coagulation type tests, and we'll talk about that. And there's also a role probably in this setting for using next-gen sequencing of the von Willebrands gene, which will very often give you a clear diagnosis in this sort of setting. Um, are there other mistakes that are made? Sure, there are lots of them. Should you have a, a confusing patient or a confusing result, give us a call here at Meichon. We're very happy to talk about the patient uh, clinically and help you choose uh, appropriate testing moving forward. Should you get testing that doesn't seem to make good clinical sense, give us a call. That's just the kind of time when we can often sort things out better with further testing and that increased clinical input really can make a difference in our ability to help you sort out these patients. Thanks a lot. That's it for us here at Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Michian Diagnostics, your reference lab and CRO specializing in thrombosis, hemostasis, and rare disease. Thank you for listening, and if you have any questions, comments, or topics you'd like to discuss, please send an email to blood, sweat, and smears at michiandiagnostics.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at michiandx. Be sure to subscribe, share, and join us next time for more coagulation information.